Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could, not have, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for, the, uh, for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You may be seated. So during this season of Lent, we're looking at the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, by design, we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark, but we're focusing on these three chapters specifically because they contain the Passion narrative. The Passion narrative is the description of the sufferings and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark has been rushing to get here. I mean, if you read the gospel, it's like he's running just to get here because the main point of the book is that we understand Jesus correctly only if we see him as a crucified Messiah, only as we see him as a suffering king. So now Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Everything is going to happen here. The religious leaders have already decided to put him to death. They're just trying to figure out how to do that. So we are now in the last days of his life, and we will spend the next six weeks on these few days because Mark takes three chapters to describe them. Now our text today, the verses I've just read to you, is another Markan sandwich. I feel like a broken record at this point because I've pointed out so many of these sandwiches to you. Maybe some of you are dreaming and looking for them as you read Scripture. It really is true. This is part of how Mark thinks. This is how part, part of how he constructs his narrative. He wants us to see something, and so he uses this technique. He'd put a story kind of in the middle of another story, or he would put bookends to, to an episode to make sure we're paying attention. He will contrast two different things. And this is how he does it here. Look at verses 1 and 2. We have the chief priests and the scribes trying to figure out how to arrest Jesus without causing a riot. Because the city is full of religious pilgrims. This is the biggest Jewish holiday. The city is probably three to five times uh, greater now, more people there than, than usual. And so the potential for riot is, is high here. So they're trying to kill him without drawing attention 
to it. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see Judas, so we're skipping the middle section, we see Judas, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, go into the chief priests and solving their problem by agreeing to betray Jesus quietly. Now that's one story, the two passages, is one story, the chief priests are trying to figure out how to kill Jesus, and then Judas gives them that opportunity. But in the middle, the story is interrupted by verses 3 through 9, and the incident of a woman anointing Jesus with very expensive perfume. Mark deliberately puts the anointing story between the religious leader's plan to kill Jesus and Judas's decision to betray him. Why? Because he wants to contrast the woman's devotion and the religious leader's and Judas's rejection of Jesus. The middle of the sandwich, the, the story that we're mostly going to be concerned with this morning, is the highlight. That's what we're meant to pay attention to. Mark wants us to see that what happened at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper is important to us today. Imagine all that fragrance in the room. I mean, imagine somebody just coming to your dinner party and, and breaking a, even a small bottle of perfume or, or cologne. And the whole room will smell, right? Like everybody who's there will smell like it for days. And I would imagine that anywhere anybody present at that party went in the following days, all through the, the week and the weekend, they will be asked the question, why do you smell like this? And they will tell the story. I was at Simon's house, and Jesus was there, and the woman came, and she spilled this, this whole big alabaster jar of perfume. And now the word is spreading. Just like fragrance is spreading, the word is spreading. And Jesus is not limiting it to just that place and that time. He actually wants the, the story of this woman anointing him spread throughout generations. Wherever the gospel is preached, he wants this to be a memorial to what happened. So this is pretty important for us to figure out. Now, what happened at Bethany at that dinner? What happened was an expression of worship. The kind of worship Jesus accepts. The kind of worship that makes sense in light of who he is and what he came to do. True worship the kind of worship that can serve as an example for future generations, for us. And so today, we have to really consider what is the nature of true worship. Let's ask the question, how should we worship Jesus? You are here, presumably, to worship Him. How should we worship Him? What is the, the way to worship Him that He accepts, that He can say, you've done a beautiful thing to me? And then the second question would be, why should we worship him? Why should we worship this Jesus in this way? So what is the nature of true worship? And then secondly, what is the reason for true worship? Let's look at the nature first. Let's look at it positively and then negatively. Now positively, we have the example of this woman pouring the ointment on Jesus' head. Negatively, we have the example of those who are indignant at her act of worship, at her devotion, who are scolding her. And there's also the contrast of what she has done with what the religious leaders are about to do and what Judas has determined 
to do. They too are wrestling with this issue of worship. They too are deciding how to treat Jesus, how to relate to him, and they decide to reject him and kill him. Now worship, of course, can be understood as assigning worth to something, as assigning worth to Jesus. What is Jesus' worth to this woman? What is his worth to the disciples? What is his worth to Judas? And what is his worth to the chief priests and the scribes? Let's start with a positive example here. Now, Jesus is having dinner at the house of Simon the leper, not to be confused with Simon the prankster or Simon the king of the dance floor. Lots of Simons in Jerusalem. You have to distinguish them from one from another. Now, this Simon, we think, is probably related to Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That's the way John describes that party. Lazarus and Mary and Martha are present there. In fact, John, in his account, identifies this woman as Mary. This is who came to anoint Jesus, somebody who knows Jesus pretty well. So this is in some ways kind of a a regular gathering of friends. I'm sure there's a lot of people there. It's at Bethany, which is a little bit, it's close to Jerusalem. It's kind of on the outskirts. This is Jesus' home base. He's going to make trips to Jerusalem every day, but he's staying at Bethany. And here comes this woman, Mary. She comes in an alabaster flask of ointment. She breaks it, and she pours it on Jesus. On his head, it's dripping on his clothes, it's dripping on his, on his feet. In John's account, she wipes the feet with her hair. This ointment, this perfume is made of pure nard. It's an oil likely imported from India or somewhere far away. It's very, very costly. It could be sold, as everybody knows at this point, it could be sold for 300 denarii which means about a year's worth of salary for an average day laborer. Not a year of savings, but a year of salary. So everything you made in one year, this is about as much as this alabaster jar of pure nard costs. Alabaster flask itself is pretty expensive. It it was meant to, to seal the fragrance, to seal and not to let the, the ointment spoil. It can only be opened once. You break it. You can't just open, take a little bit out, close it back up. No, no, no. The only way you can get to it, you will break it, and then when you, you have to use it all at that point. And this is exactly what this woman does. She breaks it, she pours it all on Jesus. Scholars tell us that the alabaster flask of costly perfume was probably a family heirloom. It's something that would have been passed down from one generation to another, something that maybe assigns certain status to the family. It's the kind of family that is wealthy enough to have this kind of money invested in an alabaster jar of perfume. For an unmarried woman, which Mary likely was, there's no mention of her husband. They're described as sisters of Lazarus. If she was, in fact, unmarried, this may have been her future dowry, something that she kept for her wedding or perhaps something that she kept for her own burial, anticipating her own funeral. This would have been used to anoint her own body as she 
dies. But however you look at it, and it's hard to know really what was meant for this particular alabaster flask of perfume, but however you look at it, this is probably most likely the most valuable thing she owns. This is something that is precious to her. And she brings it to Jesus. This is really important to see. This is something that is very valuable to her. Probably the most precious thing she owns. And she brings it to Jesus. And she gives it to him. She leaves it all with Jesus. We see a wholehearted devotion here. This is... This is not a calculated act of worship. She brings the most precious thing she has, and she gives it all to Jesus. She attaches her security, her significance, directly to Jesus. As Alistair Begg said, the woman poured out her future on Jesus' head. She poured out her future on his head. Meaning if she had kept it for her wedding or if she kept it for her burial, now she takes it and she spends it all on Jesus as if saying, now my future is connected with you. Now my security is connected with you. You will need to make me secure. You will need to make me significant. Whatever status I have, whatever reputation I have, it has to be now connected to you. She brings all of that to Jesus. She holds nothing back. She bets all she has on him. No reservations, no concern about what others might think of her, which of course she is scolded. There is a scandalous feel to what she's doing. But it was an act of worship as pure as the nard of her ointment. And Jesus knows it. Jesus sees it for exactly for what it is. And she says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. There is no hint of rebuke. Jesus is not saying, I will accept it as an act of foolish devotion. And maybe when she matures, she will learn how to handle her money better. That is not what Jesus is saying. There's unequivocal approval from Jesus. He says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. In fact, this is so beautiful. I want you to remember, and wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. And here we are, centuries later, generations later, we are remembering what she did. And we too are looking at our own worship and we're asking the same question. What is true worship? What is the nature of our true, real devotion to Jesus? The kind of devotion that he will see as beautiful. Not other people, but he will consider to be beautiful. What was Jesus worth to Mary? It was greater. His worth was greater than anything she had anything she possessed. There was nothing in her life that she considered to be more important than Jesus. And so everything was available to him. This is a convicting passage, isn't it? It is to me. It forces me to consider what I think 
Jesus' worth to me. If I compare him, if I, I mean, I can, of course, I can separate him. I can, I can put him alongside other things. I can put him in a compartment. But if I compare him to other things in my life that I consider to be important and valuable, where does he rank? Am I offering everything to him in worship? Is everything on the table before him? Is everything available to him? Can he ask anything of me? And I would say yes. Am I holding something back? Am I pouring everything out to him? What is in my alabaster flask? What is in yours? What is it that gives you security? You say, yeah, things may go badly, but at least I'll be able to recover because I have this. Or maybe when everything else goes wrong, I at least have this. It'll give me enough meaning. What makes you, you? What gives you significance? What makes you feel good about life? That's your alabaster flask. And the question is, are you holding it back from Jesus? Or are you bringing it to him? Uh, one preacher said that in Jesus' treasury, there are a lot of strange gifts. There's the broken alabaster jar. There's the two copper coins, right? that the widow brought. There's things like that that are valuable to him. They may not be valuable to anybody else, but they're valuable to him because they were given to him in an act of true worship, because they were not held back, because we did not hold too tightly to it and say, Jesus, you're not worth more than this. This is more important to me than you. Are you willing to give it to Jesus? Are you willing to break the alabaster flask and pour it all out to him? Are you willing to trust him with your future? Now let's look at the worship, at, at the nature of worship negatively. And we'll see that contrast uh, even more sharply. As soon as the woman pours out the ointment on Jesus, some people begin to get very angry. First, they, they kind of murmur to themselves. They kind of say things under their breath. And they're saying things like, geez, this is a lot of money. Um, if we could sell that, think about how many people we can feed, how many people we can clothe. And there's a lot of people. This is a, a big deal in Jerusalem right now. A lot of poor people begging for alms. If she wanted to make a proper sacrifice, it would have been better if she sold it and then gave the money to the poor. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be more effective, more efficient, more pragmatic? You see, they have done the cost-benefit analysis, and they have concluded that what she did was not worth it, that it was a waste. She wasted all the perfume on Jesus. And to really get the value out of it, we should have sold it and given it to the poor. Then you're really getting the value out of it. But really, she was mistaken. And so she made a poor decision, and she wasted all that money, all that wealth on Jesus. And so they scold her. They are scolding her. Now it's no longer stuff they're saying under their breath. It quickly moves to this open hostility towards her. 
And they're saying, you should not have done that. How foolish are you to do that? Have you thought about all these poor people that we could have helped? Now, there are many people today that resonate with the conclusion of these critical disciples. Most people in the world today think that what you are doing this morning, coming to church, spending a couple hours at church, singing songs nobody sings, listening to words from an ancient book, giving money to support this building, to support the staff and the ministries of the church. Most people in the world think this is a waste of your time and resources. There's lots of other things you can do with your life that would be better, people think. In fact, it's not just in the world. Many people in the church think the same thing. People think that maybe if we didn't worship as often, we could do more good in the world. In fact, there are some churches that actually go to uh, three worship services a month and one Sunday where we just go and serve people. I don't know if you've heard about this. This is not an unusual idea today. We can't meet every week. Let's meet maybe every other week, and then those alternating weeks, we'll do something good in the world. So at least we're doing something good alongside our worship. Now, people, I think, have good motives for this. I'm not condemning anybody who who says we should not just worship, but also serve, of course. But when you start saying it's not worth it getting together every week on Sunday, when you say uh, time would be better spent if we serve others, what we're saying is that worship should be put on a, a lower category of priority. We're saying that worship is not worth it. There are other things, there are better things we can do. It's sort of a pragmatic approach. You know, maybe hearing a sermon three times a month is enough. Maybe even twice a month is enough. It's enough to build you up. It's enough to give you some content. We can certainly supplement it in other ways. But now it frees up this opportunity to do something we really are supposed to be doing which is serving people, which is doing good things in our community, helping people, filling needs. And so this kind of pragmatism has become part of how many churches worship today. Some churches cut out prayer altogether. And so you would go to a worship service, and it'll be a crisp hour, and there's no prayer, because prayer takes time. Prayer is incredibly inefficient. You would not do communion, maybe at all, maybe not as often as every week or even every month, because you have to explain what we're doing. Now you're getting into conversations with newcomers that will feel weird, and they won't understand. And so let's not do it, let's streamline it, let's do things that are clear. Let's, let's not overcomplicate things. Uh, things like scripture reading is often omitted in churches today, because it takes time. Right? And because it sounds old and it sounds boring, so maybe we'll just let the pastor explain it. We don't need to really read it. Let's just let's get to the explanation because that's what really people are here for. Now, underneath all this, now there could be good motivations. I think it's good to think of new visitors. It's good to think, what will they understand? What, do we can, what can we do better to explain things better? How can we not abuse the privilege of having people here on a Sunday morning and not to take too long if we don't have to? Those are all good questions for a church to ask. But underneath that 
there's a worship-killing pragmatism that easily creeps in. And you start making decisions based on what's pragmatic, what's useful, what's efficient. Our pragmatism in these kinds of decisions communicates that we don't think Jesus himself is really worth it. There's got to be other things. What is the point of worship? That's the question. It's certainly not efficiency. can be. Nor is it what we get out of it. When we start evaluating our worship in terms of what it does to us, I think we've already too, become too pragmatic. Does, does the worship service help you? Absolutely. <laughs> Following Jesus will do a lot of things for you. But if your main question is, what do I get out of it? What is the benefit for me if I attend a worship service? You're already way too pragmatic. J.B. Torrance, Scottish theologian, said, more important than our experience of Christ is the Christ of our experience. More important than our experience of Christ is the Christ of our experience. The point of worship is Jesus. Amen. That's the point. So if you get together on a Sunday morning, the reason you should be here is for Jesus. And everything is evaluated on the basis of what does he think? What does he think? Does he want us to talk to him in prayer? I'm pretty sure he does. So we're going to do that. Does he want us to hear from his word? Yes. We're going to read his word. Sometimes leaving things unexplained. Does he want to, want to see us at his table? Yes, he does. So we're going to go to the table and take the bread and take the cup. Do you see how all those decisions become very different when you start thinking about worship as something we do for Jesus, we do with him, we do in his presence, and not for ourselves? When it comes to, to worship, the question is, what value do we assign to Jesus? How much of our life, how much of our time, how much of our energy, how much of our, our resource is he worth? If he is only worth as much as we get out of our relationship with him, we are more like the pragmatic disciples, chief priests, and Judas. Now, people leave the church disappointed that Jesus has not met their expectations. He did not heal them or provide financial stability for them or preserve their reputation or make them successful in their mission or cause or maybe in his mission or cause. And they conclude he is not worth worshiping then. Because, you know, I put in the time. I showed up every Sunday, I've listened to his word, I've followed him, and look, he's not given me what I need. So he's not worth it. He's not worth it. If we make a decision based on that, I'm disappointed in Jesus because he hasn't done what I expected him to do, and thus I will no longer worship him. You've never really worshiped him. Something else has been going on. There's some calculated, pragmatic approach to religion, to Jesus that you have employed. 
the decision, that kind of decision to leave Jesus if he's not meeting our expectations shows the pragmatism at the core of our relationship with him. But Jesus desires the worship of the woman who gave it all to him because she thought he was worth everything. What kind of worshiper are you? Are you more like Mary who's saying, Jesus is so important to me. There's nothing else in my life that's more important than him, so I'm going to bring it to him. I'm just going to give it to him in an act of worship without any expectation because simply the way he is, it's just worth it. Or are you more like Judas who's followed Jesus for a while and things looked good at times, but then eventually he just decided it's just not working for me. It's not working for me. Jesus is... Is, is actually more valuable to me, betrayed and dead, than alive and asking me to follow him. And so he said, at least I'll make some money off of him. And how much is he worth? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a male slave in Israel. Let me give an illustration by Charles Spurgeon that shows us this contrast in worship. What are we coming with when we bring something to Jesus? Why are we bringing it to him? What is the nature of our relationship? And what do we expect in return, if anything at all? Now, you may have heard this this illustration before. I think it really describes it well. There was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he was just so excited about this enormous carrot that he went to his king And he said, Your Majesty, I I am so thrilled that the Lord blessed me with this marvelous harvest, and especially this enormous carrot. And as an act of my devotion to you, as an act of my respect for you, my love for you, my gratitude for how well you rule our realm, I'm going to present it to you as a gift. And so he hauls in this enormous carrot and gives it to the king. The king says, clearly, you are a great gardener. I want to give you a plot of land where you can grow stuff like that, where you can grow maybe even a more enormous carrot, or maybe a beet, or maybe strawberries, but I'm going to give you this land, and I want to see how the Lord will bless you there. The gardener, of course, was surprised by the king's kindness and went home rejoicing. But in court that day, there was a nobleman who witnessed this this expression of devotion from the farmer and the king's response to that gift. And he thought to himself, I am a great horse breeder, and I'm going to bring my best horse to the king as a gift. And when he sees it, he will give me even more power in the land. He will give me a greater pasture and he will give me a greater freedom to breed horses and maybe he'll even make me a royal uh, horse breeder. I don't think that's a job, but I'm improvising a little bit here. So he brings this, this beautiful, handsome black stallion. He bows before the king and he says, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed in my life. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and devotion and gratitude for how well you rule 
the realm. This is, a, this is an expression of my respect of you, my obedience to you as my king. But the king discerned his heart, and he simply said, thank you, took the horse, and dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman, of course, was perplexed because the king gave a lot of land to the gardener to grow more carrots, but the king didn't give him anything. And so as he lingered there, the king said, let me explain that gardener was given me the carrot, but you were given yourself the horse. And so it is with many of us today, when we go to Jesus and we bring something to him, we're not actually giving it to him. We're giving it to ourselves. Because we are there to get something from him. And we're willing to make a calculated sacrifice. We're willing to make an investment, but only if we get something better in return. By worshiping Jesus, many of us are really worshiping ourselves. Now, what is the reason for this true worship? If the bar is here, it's bringing your alabaster flask of your best ointment, bringing your most precious thing and leaving it with Jesus. If that's the bar of true worship, how do we get there? Why would we worship this Jesus that considers this expression of devotion a beautiful thing? What would motivate us to do that? Look at verses 6 and 7. This is Jesus responding to the pragmatism of those scolding the woman. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, for a reader who's familiar with the Old Testament, which all of these disciples are, they know Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 15, 11. And Deuteronomy 15, 11 talks about the perpetual desire to help the poor, the perpetual need of the poor in the land, where the Lord says, you will always have the poor here. So continuously care for them. Never stop caring for them. So what Jesus is saying here is not don't help the poor. And some people use this verse. Somebody comes with a need and they say, well, you always have the poor with you, right? Meaning we don't need to help them. They're always around. Anything you do is fine for them. That's not what Jesus is saying. If he's referencing Deuteronomy 15, what he's saying is that is always something you should be doing. But then he says there's something that is more important than this. And what he does is he sets priority of worship over service. He says, yes, you should serve. Yes, you should give to the poor. But what is even more important than that, what supersedes that is your worship of me. The Lord gave us two great commandments. To love him with everything we have, every part of us, every part of our being. And then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Notice the priority. First priority is to love the Lord. Second priority is to love others. And as you love others, you don't love them as you love the Lord. You love them as you love yourself. And what Jesus says here is he's making a claim. 
Please don't miss this. The only way what he says makes sense is if he is God. And he says, yes, help the poor, but worship me first because I am worthy of your worship. He is God. He deserves our unreserved, non-pragmatic worship precisely because he is God. He is the most worthy being in existence. There is simply nothing in existence that is of greater value than he is. Whatever we bring to him in worship can never exceed his worth. This is what he's saying. Yes, you can help the poor. Yes, you should help the poor. Yes, you should love other people as you love yourself. But you should worship him as he is, the God that he is. There is nobody more beautiful than him, which means whatever beautiful thing you bring to him will never match him. It will never be more than he deserves, which is why any gift brought in this wholehearted devotion is going to be worth it and is going to be accepted by him as the right expression of how we think and feel about him. Now look at verse 8. Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She brings her worship to Jesus, who is God and deserves anything we give him and everything we have. And then he says, In this act of worship, she's actually prophesying that I will die and I will be buried and I will be anointed and I'll be put in a grave. What Jesus is saying is, I am God and I'm about to die for you. This is how you worship me. I am God, the most beautiful, the most worthy person in existence, and I am going to subject myself to the worst possible death for you. God died. Pragmatism, cost-benefit analysis, calculated approach cannot survive the gospel of the cross. The crucifixion of the Son of God destroys any calculation we can make for why we should follow him, whether it's worth it to follow him, whether it works for us to follow him. Once you come to the gospel and you see this crucified God, you say, there is nothing in my life that's off limits. How can it be? How can he ask anything of me? And I would say, well, that's not appropriate. That's too far. That's off the table. Do you see that if we see him as God, who he is, this is who he is. And as a God who is dying for us on the cross, in scandal, in derision, in shame, dying for us because that is the only way to make us into worshipers. When we see him that way, which is what Mark wants us to see, Mark wants us to see Jesus on the cross. And if we see him that way, the only appropriate response is for us to grab everything we can take and bring it all to him and say, Jesus, what else do you want? I'm bringing my alabaster flask. I'm bringing my precious things to you. I'm bringing the most beautiful things I can imagine, and they're all for you. Do whatever you want with them. 
because you are a God on the cross. Now we're going to come to communion. Unless you think communion is irrelevant. Communion, coming to the Lord's table, is our expression of worship. And you can come with all sorts of motivations to this table. You may be an unbeliever here who doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't believe in him, and you will feel that I have to do it because everybody else is doing it. Who are you then worshiping? Not Jesus. You're worshiping other people. You're worshiping their opinion. You're worshiping their praise. You're concerned with your reputation. You don't want to be embarrassed. That's not true worship. So don't come to the table, but go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and bring your whole life to him, to this God on the cross, the most beautiful being in existence who decided that you were worth it for him to die. And if you're a believer and you come to this table, and I want you to come to the table, but as you come to the table, are you coming because this is something you have to do to stay in God's good, good graces? Are you coming because you feel like you have to do it so that God doesn't punish you? You have to fulfill these obligations and meet these criteria? If you come in, in that way, you are not really worshiping Him because you don't know Him. You don't know that this is not the kind of God He is. Jesus is the kind of God that gave everything for you so you could have everything in Him. And so He comes first. He came to your table first so you can come to his. He went into your grave first so you can see his empty tomb and rejoice that we are now forever forgiven, forever embraced by him and accepted by him. And now we can actually worship him because we see him for who he is. And we are welcomed by him. And we can bring anything to him and he will say, you have done a beautiful thing for me. As we come to the table, and, and I'm going to read from Mark's account of, of uh, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. It's slightly different. It's a little bit different. Maybe it will help us not to get you know, too used to what we usually read. And maybe we'll just tweak it a little bit for you to pay a little more attention to what's happening. But as I read it, I'll pray and I'll read it, but as I read it, notice how similar the language of his, what he does at the table is to what the woman did to him. Notice that he too is breaking his body. He too is pouring out everything he's got for you. This is a new covenant, a new worship relationship that he is establishing with us, both by being the God that is worthy of our worship and being the Savior who can bring us to that God so we can actually worship him truly. So let me pray, and then as I'm done praying and reading from Mark 14, 22 through 24, you'll come to the table, take bread and, and take the cup. You can take it right here as we sing, or you can bring it back to your seats to meditate more on it. It's set up at the tables and the balconies as well. And if you can't make your way forward, just raise your hand, an elder will, will bring communion to you. So let's pray. Father, we praise you. Oh, how we praise you simply because of who you are. You are majesty. You are beauty. You are love. Who or what is more valuable than you are? Who can compare to you? 
as we read through the scriptures, how often do we, do we hear a poet or a singer or a prophet saying, Lord, there's no one like you. Nobody can compare to you. There's no other God like you. There's no other human that is like you. You are simply unimaginably beautiful. Great is our God. Great not, not in the term of greatness that we see here, but so much greater than anything we can imagine. And just based on that, we should worship you. Just based on the fact that Jesus is God, we should bow before him and bring everything we have to him. But we have even more reason to worship that this God became human, suffered, died for us, was buried in a tomb, in a borrowed tomb, the one who owns the world, died for our sins because we cannot bear our own guilt. We cannot fix ourselves. And so God became human and died. But he didn't stay in the tomb. On the third day, he rose again. And with his resurrection comes new life to us, comes new worship to us, comes this new relationship, new covenant to us. And now as we come to him, not only do we see him as he is, we're also drawn to him because he has made a way for us. We are now accepted in God's family, brought into God's kingdom. So Lord, we just want to bring to you whatever we have, whatever valuable things we have, whether it's our families or our health or our work, our success, our reputation, our pleasures, our comforts. We bring it all to you and we pour it all out to you, Lord. We break the alabaster flask so we can never put it back in it again. And we leave it all at this table. We leave it all at the cross of Jesus. Let us not be pragmatists. Let us not search for efficiency in our worship, for the right exchange. But let us realize that the exchange, this wonderful exchange, has already taken place when the Son of God died for me on the cross so that I can rise with him in his place, be loved by God forever. Thank <clears throat>